Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. Three American servicemen are dead and dozens are wounded after a deadly drone attack in US for, on U.S. forces in Jordan. Find out who officials believe is behind the attack and how lawmakers are reacting. More countries pause their funding for the United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees after allegations that some employees took part in the October 7th terrorist attacks. Officials from Israel, Qatar, Egypt and the U.S. meet to discuss a deal to release hostages and pause fighting. Was any progress made? Former President Trump vows to appeal an $83 million verdict in E. Jean Carroll's defamation case. More on the verdict and analysis on what's next. Lawmakers on the verge of a strike of striking a bipartisan deal on border reform that could unlock foreign aid for Ukraine and Israel. Hear what Trump has to say about it. A shocking sight in Paris. We have the video of the Mona Lisa being vandalized by activists. Find out who's behind the protest and what they want. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome and happy Monday. Today's January 29th. And in our top news today, American troops under attack. Three U.S. service members were killed and at least 34 wounded in a drone assault by Iran-backed groups in Jordan near the Syrian border. Yeah, just more signs that this war is widening. Yeah, and CENTCOM says that they won't reveal who the service members are until they actually have told the families and then wait 24 hours after that. Right, yeah, and officials say the drone struck near the barracks early in the morning, which could explain the high number of casualties. President Biden promised the U.S. would respond. We have more on the updates in this developing story, but soon. First, we hear from Lieutenant Commander Stephen Rogers, a retired U.S. Navy officer at the Office of Naval Intelligence. Good morning, Lieutenant Commander Rogers. Thank you for coming on the show. Did Iran cross a red line here? Yes, they did cross a red line, but not because of the recent bombing uh, that resulted in the death of American troops. They crossed this line a long time ago. And Barack Obama and Joe Biden have been trying to appease the Iranians uh, since uh, they took office. Now we have a situation, what I call Vietnam Chapter 2. I remember the slow escalation of the Vietnam War began just this way, and result, 50,000 American troops killed, a 10-year war. So we've got to respond rather decisively very soon. So Lieutenant Commander Rogers, will the U.S. striking Iran-backed militias do any good, or does Iran just see them as expendable and they need to actually strike leadership within the Quds Force? Well, we've tried to uh, send a message to Iran by hitting their uh, proxy groups in the uh, Mideast. It's time to hit Iran, Iran and hit them very, very hard. Uh, the United States, uh, hopefully at this point, is rallying our allies together. And this retaliatory strike has to be strong and it has to be very, very decisive. Right. And you're referring to those airstrikes in Iraq on the Hezbollah groups. Do you think that the United States needs to bring in more firepower and send a clearer message than just these limited airstrikes that they've been doing? We all remember witnessing strike and awe in Iraq. We have to make that look like a fireworks display compared to what will go on in Iran. We've got to destroy the enemy, destroy their assets, destroy their capabilities, and ensure that this doesn't happen again, not only from Iran, but it'll send a clear message to other potential enemies. 
Well, let's try to Commander Rogers. We know that Iran's been sponsoring terrorism since its revolution in 1979. And then the U.S., all these presidents ever since then have taken a cautious approach because they don't want to get in, caught in a very protracted in war with Iran here. But does this significant escalation here cause the U.S. to have to proceed very cautiously and make a measured strike and how they're going to respond to this? Well, we've had measured strikes, haven't we? We, we have been doing this uh, uh, addressing of the problems we're having with Iran, with Iran very measurably. I like, uh, it's amazing when you hear the word, well, we're going to do a proportionate strike. No such thing as a proportionate strike. Ronald Reagan made it very clear, you have peace through strength. The Iranian government knows one language, and that's strength. So they have perceived us as being weak because of the Biden administration. Well, it's now that they understand that we're not weak, we're strong, and we're going to use our military might to protect Americans now, American troops that are in the region. Right, and NATO Secretary General, the former one, Commander Clark, he was saying that this attack was done in order to show that the U.S. is weak here. Is it time for the Biden administration to take a page out of the Trump playbook and go after leadership within the Quds Force after Trump took out Soleimani, maybe to attack his predecessor? Well, look, at what the American government has to do is go beyond that. Not only go after leadership, go after their command and control centers, go after the heart of their military might, Go after their Navy, their Army, their Marines, their Revolutionary Guard. Go after every single military asset they have. And you know what? They're going to get the message loud and clear. That's how you win. You don't win by sitting back and waiting for them to do something like they just did. Take the lives of more Americans. And we definitely have heard President Biden said that they vowed to respond here. We'll have to see what happens. Lieutenant Commander Stephen Rogers, retired U.S. Navy officer at the Office of Naval Intelligence. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. American troops under attack. Three U.S. service members were killed and at least 34 wounded in a drone assault by Iran-backed groups in Jordan near the Syrian border. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the attack and responses from lawmakers and others. Officials say the drone struck near the barracks early in the morning, which could explain the high number of casualties. President Biden promised the U.S. would respond. We've lost three brave souls. The military said the attack occurred at a base in northeastern Jordan, reportedly called Tower 22, near the Syrian border. Tower 22 holds a strategically important location in Jordan, where the country's borders meet Syria and Iraq. The base includes logistics support, and there are roughly 350 Army and Air Force troops stationed there. Former NATO allied Supreme Commander Wesley Clark says the strike aimed to demonstrate America's powerlessness. To make us look weak, to uh, show that we're incapable of defending ourselves. Former President Trump issued a statement saying, this brazen attack on the United States is yet another horrific and tragic consequence of Joe Biden's weakness and surrender. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley called the attack shameful and led a prayer for families who lost loved ones. We need to lift up every one of those families who lost their loved ones and every one of those families whose loved ones have been injured. This is the first time U.S. troops have died at enemy hands in the region since the war in Gaza started. Biden says the U.S. knows it was carried out by radical Iran-backed militant groups operating in Syria and Iraq. 
Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin says he's outraged and deeply saddened by the deaths and injuries of U.S. service members. But Senator Lindsey Graham criticized the defense secretary, saying Austin's efforts to deter aggression against U.S. forces in the region have failed miserably. And the Republican senator called for retaliation, saying, hit Iran now, hit them. A sentiment echoed by Senator John Cornyn, who wrote on X, Target Tehran. Journalist Tucker Carlson mocked the pair of senators, sharing a screenshot of their calls for war, calling them lunatics. Senator Tom Cotton issued a statement criticizing the Biden administration, saying Biden left U.S. troops as sitting ducks and called for devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces. Iran's mission to the United Nations said in a statement on Monday that Tehran was not involved in the attack. Retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling called for caution in any rush to action against Iran. You got to remember that Iran is connected to not only Russia, but also China and other nations. The Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella organization of hardline Iran-backed factions, claimed attacks on three bases, including one on the Jordan-Syria border. It's unclear if they're responsible for the deaths of the three U.S. troops. The attack is likely to fan fears of wider conflict in the Middle East. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And on Sunday, France became the latest country to pause its funding of the United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees. This following allegations by Israel that employees of the agency took part in the October 7th Hamas terrorist attacks. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, on Friday opened an investigation into some of its employees based on information provided by Israel. Israel alleged that 12 of the agency's 13,000 staff in Gaza were involved in the October 7th attacks where Hamas terrorists killed 1,200 and abducted hundreds more. The UN on Sunday confirmed that nine of those 12 staff members had been fired. An urgent and comprehensive uh, independent review of UNRWA uh, will be conducted, as it has been announced by Philippe Lazzarini, the Commissioner General of UNRWA. Any employee of UNRWA who is involved in acts of terror will be held accountable, including through criminal prosecution. Several countries, including UNRWA's main donor, the United States, swiftly paused their funding to the organization. France and Japan are the latest to join that list. France and Japan echoed statements by other countries, calling the allegations extremely serious. They said they would halt all unallocated funds until the investigation is complete. Criminal prosecution of UN staff members would be a rare move, since they normally enjoy functional immunity. This means they cannot be taken to court for anything they have said or done as part of their duties. Prosecuting them would mean that Israel's allegations against them are accurate. The White House welcomed the investigation. As Secretary Blinken made clear in his call with the Secretary General yesterday, we expect that that will be a complete and thorough and transparent investigation. Israel has long criticized UNRWA, saying the agency has been supporting Hamas for years. It's an allegation UNRWA denies. The UN is not only weaponized to delegitimize our existence, but also to physically exterminate us. 
UNRWA was established by the UN General Assembly in 1949 to provide assistance and protection to Palestinian refugees across the region. In 2023, the agency reported that it had received over $700 million in funding. Many of Gaza's 2.3 million people have become reliant on the aid UNRWA provides. UNRWA is our lifeline. Who will give us food and drink after the war? May God help the people. What can I say? While stressing the serious nature of the allegations, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres urged countries to reconsider suspending their funding. Israel confirmed that a four-way meeting between the U.S., Israel, Qatar and Egypt took place in Europe over the weekend. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office said talks were constructive, but significant gaps remain. More meetings are expected to take place this week. CIA Director William Burns, the head of Israel's Mossad intelligence service, the Qatari prime minister and the head of Egyptian intelligence, they discussed details of the deal. No details have been released. That's as hundreds of Israeli protesters yesterday blocked aid trucks from driving into Gaza. They demanded hostages be freed before any more aid gets delivered into the Strip. Meanwhile, Netanyahu remains defiant after the U.N. ruling asking Israel for a compliance report within a month. The International Court of Justice had ordered Israel to limit deaths and damage, but stopped short of ordering a ceasefire. Netanyahu said the war's goal is to eliminate Hamas, return all hostages, and ensure Gaza will no longer be a threat to Israel. A British oil tanker was hit by a Houthi missile on Friday after attempting to travel through the Red Sea. The Marlin Luanda oil tanker caught fire after being targeted by the Iran-backed group. That's according to Trafigura, the company that operates the ship. Indian, American and French ships provided essential assistance after receiving the distress call. The fire was extinguished and no injuries have been reported so far. In a British warship, the HMS Diamond repelled another drone attack on Saturday from Yemen's Houthi group, according to British officials. U.S. and British forces have responded to the Houthi attacks with dozens of strikes across Yemen. Ukrainian defense officials stole about $40 million in funds meant for the purchase of weapons. That's according to the country's security service, which released pictures Saturday showing raids in progress. The discovery of the mass corruption scheme comes as Ukraine's trying to speed up its membership in the European Union and NATO and secure more aid from the U.S. The alleged embezzlement involves a contract for 100,000 mortar shells from weapons supplier Lviv Arsenal. The order was placed in August 2022, just months after the war started. The money was paid in full up front to the company, but no mortars were ever delivered. Ukraine Security Service, or SBU, said five suspects were indicted for fraud. Those include former and current high-ranking defense officials, a top manager at Lviv Arsenal, and a representative of a foreign commercial group. The SBU said one of the suspects was stopped while trying to cross the Ukrainian border. Ukraine's prosecutor general said the stolen funds were seized and would be returned to the defense budget. And Lviv Arsenal told local media that the person responsible for the ammunitions contract has been fired. This scandal comes at a bad time for the Ukrainians. The Biden administration's request for $60 billion more in assistance for Ukraine is stalled in Congress. Some lawmakers, including House Speaker Mike Johnson, are demanding more oversight of U.S. funds. 
We need the questions answered about the, the strategy, about the end game, and about the accountability for the precious treasure of the American people. Since Russia's invasion, the U.S. has committed at least $44 billion in military assistance to Ukraine. The Ukrainian Security Service said the embezzled money came from state funds, not money from foreign aid. Stay with us. Is an $83 million payment for damages justified in Trump's defamation case? And where will that money go as Trump vows to appeal? An attorney for the former president weighs in. A former judge recommends Trump be kept on Illinois ballot as election officials get set to weigh in on disqualification. A bipartisan bill to limit illegal immigration and secure the border could go to the Senate floor in the next few days. But former President Trump is urging Senate Republicans to reject it. Articles of impeachment are released against Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas as issues mount at the border. Hear the details coming up. Good to have you back. A retired Illinois state judge is recommending that Trump stay on the state's GOP primary ballot. Retired state judge Clark Erickson said yesterday he thinks Trump took part in an insurrection, but stated the decision should be left to the courts. Illinois is set to vote tomorrow if Trump should be disqualified. Attorneys for Trump and the group Free Speech for People presented their arguments on Friday. The group praised the judge's recommendation, but argued that Illinois law allows the state's election board to make the ballot decision. Erickson says the board doesn't have the authority to vet candidates based on federal constitutional considerations. He says the board can't resolve the matter before the primary on March 19th. The Illinois Board of Elections is split between four Democrats and four Republicans. The judge recommended the board dismiss the case against Trump. A federal jury has ordered former President Trump to pay over $83 million in damages to E. Jean Carroll. The verdict marked the second time over the past year that a jury has awarded millions to Carroll over her defamation claims. Trump promised to appeal minutes after the verdict. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. Friday's verdict against Trump awarded E. Jean Carroll a total amount eight times higher than first sought in her lawsuit over $18 million in compensatory damages and $65 million in punitive damages. Carroll's lawyers told the jury Trump should be punished with an unusually high number to get defamatory comments to stop. Carroll attorney Roberta Kaplan told the jury in closing arguments, billions of dollars is just a drop in the bucket for Trump. Kaplan, after the verdict, told CNN, all Trump understands is money. And so you should award an amount of money that will make him stop. Kaplan has spent most of her career representing corporate firms like J.P. Morgan Chase, T-Mobile, and the Minnesota Vikings. Other past clients include President Biden's daughter, Ashley Biden, and Hunter Biden's Chinese business associate, Mervyn Yan. Today was a good day for our system of justice. Today was a day that showed that the rule of law applies to everyone. The jury in the first defamation trial against Trump awarded Carroll a total of $5 million in damages last year after finding Trump liable for sexual battery and defamation. That verdict is still being appealed. Trump declared Friday he will swiftly appeal this one too, posting on Truth Social that the legal system is out of control and being used as a political weapon. Trump attorney Alina Haba predicted a win on appeal and vowed to keep fighting for First Amendment rights. President Trump is leading 
in the polls. And now we see what you get in New York. So don't get it twisted, whoever asked me that question. I am so proud to stand with President, President Trump. Right before the plaintiff's closing argument, the judge asked Haba to stop talking and threatened her with time in the lockup. Haba says Trump was stripped of every defense before walking into court and claims the judge denied letting her experts testify. No, I'm not having any second thoughts about representing President Trump. It is the proudest thing I could ever do. Trump maintains he was falsely accused. He can either pay the court the full amount or put a 20% deposit down to appeal. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And to break down the judgment against Trump in the defamation case, we're bringing on Will Scharf, a former federal prosecutor and attorney for President Trump. Will, thank you for your time this morning. Is an $83 million payment in damages justified here? Well, no payment of damages is justified here because President Trump did nothing wrong. But certainly within the context of all of the E. Jean Carroll litigation, including the first judgment of $5 million, uh, $83 million seems to be a number that the jury plucked out of thin air. And that's certainly something that we're going to look at on appeal. The, the vehicle to challenge that would be what's called remitter, uh, a process by which a judgment can be sought to be reduced. And certainly the outlandish and outsized nature of this verdict almost begs to be reconsidered on appeal. Can you explain a little bit more about that process that you explained remitter? Sure, remitter is, is the way by which you challenge uh, the legal validity of a, of a, damages, uh, a damages award. Uh, in this case, we're looking at any number of different grounds for appeal here. I think President Trump is going to have a strong and vigorous appeal. I think there are numerous aspects of this case that are uh, rightfully going to be challenged on appeal. And I think ultimately uh, this judgment cannot stand because it is totally at variance with the law and totally at variance with President Trump's constitutional rights. So Trump can delay paying these damages while the appeal process is playing out. So is there going to be any money moving around here? And if so, where will that go? Well, typically when you uh, when you file an appeal, uh, in some cases you do need to put up an appeal bond. That's a portion of the judgment uh, that is put up essentially as security while the appeal proceeds. In other cases, a bond is not required uh, in the days and, and weeks ahead. Uh, the, the, the team is going to be making a number of decisions about how this appeal is going to proceed. Uh, but suffice it to say that uh, all of these issues, the many issues with how this trial was conducted, certainly issues with the damages award, with the evidence that was allowed to come in at trial, uh, President Trump's appeal is going to be uh, vigorous and strong, and uh, we're confident in our prospects on appeal. Okay, so give us the where and when and the step-by-step -step process of Trump's quest to appeal here. Sure. So this judgment is from a federal district court in the Southern District of New York. Appeals from that court are taken uh, to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Uh, and from there, ultimately, uh, you, you go up to the Supreme Court. Uh, but we have confidence that when the Second Circuit looks at the many legal issues uh, that we're going to raise with this case that, that were present during the, the, during the trial and during this case, for, really from its initiation, uh, that this uh, this damages award is just not going to stand. And I will point out here that the judge in this case, Kaplan, was called a disgrace by former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani here. So why was Trump's team denied the ability to let their experts testify, which is a claim that Trump's attorney Haba made? Yeah, there were numerous evidentiary issues with how this trial was conducted. Uh, the inability of President Trump to present uh, what, what I would consider to be vital evidence, including expert witness testimony, uh, was repeatedly stymied uh, by Judge Kaplan. 
I think those are all going to be issues that are going to be looked at with great interest by a hopefully fair appeals court. Uh, this trial was highly irregular in numerous ways. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's really quite something. I think President Trump is rightfully offended by how this process played out. Uh, but fortunately, the process doesn't end here. Uh, we are going to challenge this judgment, and I don't believe that ultimately uh, Judge Kaplan and this outsized verdict will be the last word in this case. Okay, so Will, previously on this show, you allege that Reed Hoffman, LinkedIn co-founder, was a leftist who was funding this whole legal battle here. And, but Hoffman's advisor said that the grant was made before Carol filed suit and the money wouldn't go to support her in particular. And Hoffman said he never made any attempt to hide the payment. What's your reaction? I think Reed Hoffman has been a key funder of this broad campaign of lawfare and election interference that we've seen being weighed against President Trump in the last few years. Uh, I, I think those denials by Hoffman's team uh, simply don't pass muster and don't pass a basic smell test. What happened here was an attempt to interfere with President Trump's ability uh, to run for office, to interfere with President Trump's ability just to go about his life as normal uh, by a far left donor who has funded Joe Biden, who has funded President Trump's political opposition at every step of the way. Make no mistake about it. This case is not about anything that happened to E. Jean Carroll. It's not about President Trump. It's not about the truth. This case is about election interference and interference with President Trump's constitutional rights. Trump attorney Will Scharf, thank you so much for your time. Great to be with you. Thanks as always. Former President Trump rallying supporters in Nevada over the weekend. In Las Vegas, he once again signaled his desire to focus on the upcoming general election. Trump is campaigning virtually unopposed in Nevada. The state will host both a caucus and a primary. Though former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley's name will be on the primary ballot, that contest won't count towards the GOP nomination. The caucus actually decides how delegates are divided, and since Haley won't be, won't be participating, Trump will win all of the state's 26 delegates. At his rally on Saturday, Trump devoted much of his time to criticizing President Biden's handling of the border crisis. He called it a crime against the nation. And just a mile away, Vice President Kamala Harris also held an event. She listed the Biden administration's accomplishments and urged voters to cast their ballots, saying, quote, this is about standing for the kind of country we want to live in. Trump, meanwhile, criticized bipartisan border deal backed by Biden. He told supporters that illegal immigration is a weapon of mass destruction being used against the U.S. There's a 100 percent chance that there will be a major terrorist attack in the United States, or many attacks, maybe. And it's all because of what's happened over the last three years. When I'm president, instead of trying to send Texas a restraining order, I will send them reinforcements. Haley has vowed to stay in the race at least until Super Tuesday on March 5th. She's currently focusing on her home state of South Carolina, which will host the next contest between her and Trump on February 24th. And a key border deal negotiator says lawmakers are on verge of striking on the verge of striking a bipartisan deal to enact new border controls. But former President Trump is calling on Republicans to reject it. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, a key negotiator on a possible border deal, said on Sunday that text of a border compromise could be ready to go to the Senate floor as soon as this week. 
we do have a bipartisan deal. We're finishing the text right now. The deal would give the president authority to shut the border between ports of entry when illegal crossings reach high levels. Also, reforming the asylum system to resolve cases in a shorter time frame and expediting work permits. President Biden has said he would sign it right now. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. Along with tighter border control, the bill would also unlock Republican support for Ukraine aid. Earlier, Republican senators had insisted that border policy changes should be a prerequisite to Biden's $110 billion emergency request for funding Ukraine and Israel. The consequence of failure here is not just that we keep immigration as an open issue available for Donald Trump to exploit in the next election. It is also that Ukraine loses this war. Former President Trump has come out in opposition to the bill. He said there could be no compromises on illegal immigration and called the deal a betrayal of America. He said that if Biden wants to secure the border, he has the power to do it without a bill. Trump also said that passing the bill now would be, quote, another gift to the radical left Democrats. A lot of the senators are trying to say respectfully they're blaming it on me. I said, that's okay. Please blame it on me, please, because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill. House Speaker Mike Johnson warned in a letter last week that the deal would be dead on arrival. House Republicans Sunday released two articles of impeachment against Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The allegations say the cabinet secretary committed high crimes and misdemeanors. The first article charges Mayorkas with willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law. House Republicans allege in the second article that Mayorkas has breached the public trust for his handling of the southern border amid record numbers of illegal immigrants. The Homeland Security Committee will meet Tuesday to mark up the articles. The articles are expected to be sent to the full House for a vote. If the House votes for impe to impeach Mayorkas, he could then go on trial in the Senate for potential removal. The top Democrat in the committee, Representative Benny Thompson, pushed back against accusations, saying the articles lack clear charges and evidence. Coming up, the Mona Lisa is targeted by protesters in Paris. Find out what happened and who was behind the vandalism. A British pianist who clashed with a pro-Beijing group makes a return to the now iconic London train station, this time with Winnie the Poohs. Find out. Welcome back. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is under fire for suggesting some pro-Palestinian protesters have a connection to Russia. Pelosi spoke on CNN's State of the Union Sunday. The protesters have recently interrupted President Biden's campaign events in several cities and an event Pelosi held recently in Seattle. Watch. So let's address that. But for them to call for a ceasefire is Mr. Putin's message. Mr. Putin's message. Make no mistake, this is directly connected to what he would like to see. Same thing with Ukraine. It's about Putin's message. I think some of these, some of these protesters are spontaneous and organic and sincere. Some, I think, are connected uh, to Russia. She also called for the FBI to investigate the financing of the protests. Pelosi received swift criticism from the head of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, who said the organization was deeply disturbed, calling Pelosi's suggestion for a probe, quote, downright authoritarian. 
And over in France, visitors to the Louvre in Paris on Sunday were in for an unexpected shock. Protesters hurled soup at the Mona Lisa painting. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the incident allegedly done to draw attention to hunger. The environmental group Repost Alimentaire, which roughly translates to food response, said two protesters involved with its campaign were behind the vandalism. A video of the incident shows the demonstrators rush up towards the painting and throwing orange-colored soup from bottles before ducking beneath a protective barrier to address onlookers. What is more important? What is more important? Art with the right to a healthy and sustainable diet. Fortunately, the famed Leonardo da Vinci painting was protected from damage by its glass casing. Staff members at the Louvre are then seen moving black screens between visitors and the protesters. The museum evacuated the room that houses the Mona Lisa, though it has since reopened. The museum said it was lodging a complaint. This Polish tourist found the vandalism disturbing. It's disgusting to treat art that's really valuable for the history of humankind that way. In a series of social media posts about the incident, the protest group said it wanted to draw attention to unsustainable food production and hunger in France, calling for the integration of food into the general social security system. According to its website, Repost Alimentaire is part of the A22 network, a collection of activist groups including Just Stop Oil. That group carried out a similar attack on Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers in London in 2022. The incident comes amid widespread demonstrations by French farmers about pay, competition and government regulations. Daniel Monaghan, NTD News. And a famous British pianist is back to public performances. This after a heated exchange last week when a Chinese TV crew demanded that he stop filming during a live stream of his performance. But the question remains, who were the people he clashed with? NTD's Sam Wong has the story. The joyful sound of Boogie Woogie Blues now returning to a public underground station in London. British pianist Brendan Kavanaugh sounded off a tune accompanied by his dancing daughter and his new friend, Winnie the Pooh. If you want to know why I'm holding Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh has been banned by the CCP as being subversive. Now this shows the power of the arts to undermine authoritarianism. Kavanaugh is a famous YouTuber known for his live performances on public pianos. He was approached by a Chinese TV crew last week in the middle of a live stream. With Chinese flags in hand, they demanded he stop filming, despite video recording being legal in UK public spaces. Yeah, did you think as all of us in your cameras? Uh, are we, are we, uh, I don't know. Are we allowed? No, we're not allowed. We're not allowed? You're not allowed because we're for Chinese TV. Oh, okay. This is not disposable. The dispute soon escalated as millions of people were watching online. But in a separate video, it appears that some members of the crew had an amicable exchange with Kavanaugh just prior to the incident, and they seem to have no problem with being filmed. So who were these people? My name is Adelina. According to netizens, the woman's name is Adelina Zhang. She's a naturalized British citizen. Over the years, Zhang has reportedly hosted a number of events sponsored by Beijing to promote UK friendliness towards China. An online picture shows she has previously worked with Newton Lang, 
the man who shouted at Kavanaugh for touching the Chinese flag in her hand. Why you're touching her? Stop touching her! Don't touch her! According to Ling's LinkedIn account, he currently works as a consultant at the Financial Times newspaper. He's also believed to be a Chinese language teacher closely affiliated with the Confucius Institute. Beijing has long been accused of using the state-backed cultural program to exert soft power overseas. After Kavanaugh referred to the Chinese flag as a communist flag, Leng immediately accused him of racism. That's when a police officer stepped in and Kavanaugh was told to not use the footage. He was, first of all, accused of racism. They knew to accuse him of racism yes. because they knew in this society that suddenly keys into progressive authoritarianism right. and then the police came in and took that very seriously right. because that's the highest value. Right. It's interesting that the Chinese, even the CCP people, know that they can weaponize them. In response to the incident, UK law enforcement issued a statement saying those who film in public places do not need permission and that the police have no power to step in. Speaking to NTD, Kavanaugh said that the piano at the station has become a symbol of free expression. This video that we did that's gone viral all around the world has been a mini parable about artistic freedom. The people who were involved in the video, we all know who they are. They are living Western lifestyles, but having a communist authoritarian ideology, a complete paradox. Samoa, NTD News. In similar news, a Chinese student convicted on American soil. He's accused of threatening a U.S. permanent resident who showed support for democracy in China. The 25-year-old is a Berkeley School of Music student when his fellow student posted flyers to support pro-democracy moves in China. Wu turned to the digital realm to threaten her, saying he'd report her activities to Chinese law enforcement and would cut off her hands if she doesn't take down the flyers. The posters read, we want freedom, we want democracy, and we stand with the Chinese people. Acting United States Attorney Joshua Levy commented on Wu's case that, quote, Wu now stands as a convicted felon for his illegal efforts to suppress speech. This type of conduct will never be tolerated. The charges could land Wu five years in prison and three more years under supervised release, plus as much as $250,000 fine. When asked about his plan going forward and how he feels about the situation, the Chinese student pointed his middle finger at the camera. Coming up, two years after defaulting on a bond and trying to refine a debt restructuring plan, refine a debt restructuring plan, Chinese property giant Evergrande is ordered to liquidate. More on a Hong Kong court's decision today. The Department of Energy says it will put solar panels on the Pentagon. Will those come from China? And if so, what are the risks? A security analyst explains. Good to have you back. A Hong Kong court today ordered China Evergrande to liquidate. This after the property developer was unable to reach a restructuring deal with creditors. The judge stated a lack of progress on a viable proposal as well as Evergrande's insolvency. Evergrande has over $300 billion of total liabilities. The company was granted an earlier reprieve after saying it was trying to refine a new plan. That was two years ago. With around $240 billion worth of assets, it's expected that a provisional liquidator will be appointed to oversee Evergrande before a permanent appointment is made. 
The company first defaulted on its financial obligations in 2021 amid China's crumbling financial markets and real estate crisis. The Energy Department plans to put solar panels on the Pentagon. What are the main concerns here? Let's find out from Stephen Bryan, a leading expert in security strategy and technology at the Center for Security Policy. Well, my main concern is the waste of hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer money for something that's not needed, uh, that won't help uh, the Pentagon in any respect. It already has a backup power system of its own. So it's independent of the power grid if it needs to be. Uh, the whole idea is ridiculous. And what about China? Well, most of the solar energy, solar panels and, and other devices that are connected with solar energy are made in China. So it's almost certain that if, the, if they actually go through with this ridiculous idea, that the stuff will come from China. There are numerous concerns of Chinese espionage and a numerous array of fields here. But if they are actually going to procure these solar panels, most of those materials would be made in China, and especially the components. Is that right? That's right. The lithium, anything lithium battery related, anything lithium related in the solar cells, all that would come from China directly or indirectly. I mean, you may have an American label on it, but it would come from China. Or you would have a Southeast Asian label on it, but it comes from China. They just assemble, make final assembly. And by, and by the way, uh, Mr. Biden vetoed legislation from Congress uh, two days ago uh, that would have stopped waivers for the Southeast Asian countries who are fronting Chinese stuff to the United States. So there's also so, the Buy American Act that the Pentagon would have to follow. How does that play into this? Well, technically speaking, uh, in Buy America, more than 50 percent of the of whatever is bought has to be U.S. sourced. Uh, it has to be U.S. origin and it has to be built by U.S. workers. Uh, but you can count a lot of things into that, like the labor that it takes to build the, 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 the rooftop panels and the wiring and the batteries and all the rest. So. Uh, you could probably fake it. Let's put it that way. You could get away with getting around the Buy America Act by being creative. That is interesting. Uh, yeah, the Buy American Act has it has two components to it in order for it to apply. It has to be intended for public use, and there has to be a sufficient amount of good materials within the United States in order for those to be used. So if they can source it here, then maybe they can do that. Well, I don't think they can do it on the materials as much as they can do it on the labor costs, because uh, the labor costs will be American. And, and, and so there'll be a lot of that. By the way, they budgeted around $100 million from the Energy Department for this project. It's going to cost three or four times that. Well, thank you so much for your input on this. Stephen Bryan at the Center for Security Policy. Thank you very much. Stay with us. A statue of baseball great Jackie Robinson stolen out of a public park in Kansas. Police are asking for help and offering rewards. Venice kicked off its carnival celebration with a colorful fleet of costume characters boating down the Grand Canal. Join in the fun when we return.
Welcome back, everyone. Authorities in Wichita, Kansas, are asking the public for help. They're searching for suspects who stole a statue of baseball legend Jackie Robinson from a public park. The suspects were captured on video around midnight last week. After they entered the park, they removed the statue and put it in a pickup truck. The suspects cut off the statue at the ankles. The city estimates damages are around $75,000. The Wichita Metro Crime Commission is offering a reward for tips leading to arrests. There's a separate reward for tips leading to finding the statue. The world's largest cruise ship set out on its maiden voyage from Miami this past weekend. Royal Caribbean's Icon of the Seas is about the size of four city blocks and runs nearly 1,200 feet from bow to stern. The ship left Miami Harbor for its first week-long island-hopping tropical cruise. It can carry up to 7,600 passengers at maximum capacity, along with over 2,300 crew members. To put things into perspective, the Titanic was around 830 feet long and held around 3,300 people. The ship has six water slides, seven swimming pools, an ice skating rink, a theater, and more than 40 restaurants, bars, and lounges. It's powered by six dual-fuel engines, which can be powered by liquefied natural gas. Heading over to Italy, the Venice Carnival season is officially here. And it kicked off with a festive water parade. Venice is a popular year-round destination for visitors from around the world. But carnival season in the Italian city is a particularly magical time. The fun begins with a huge costumed flotilla of boats making their way down Venice's iconic canal. The celebration is all about fun and respect for the city, according to the mayor. There is so much joy around, people want to have fun, and most of all to respect the city. We are demonstrating it is possible to have fun and have respect for each other, and have respect for a city that is the most beautiful city in the world. I think that showing what Venice is like is a tribute to all of Italy and to all the world. This is what it means to be Venetian. Whoever loves Venice is Venetian. These crew members enjoy dressing up in costumes. This is Sandalo. It's a boat where up to four people can row. Our costumes don't have a specific subject, but we could say we are just two men from Dubai, and we are here at the parade to have fun. This is the typical Venetian's carnival. The best boat receives an award. We feel completely free, as you can see. There are really good boats. There is an award, so the most beautiful boat will get it. But we are just a crew of sporting rowers, so everybody does what they feel like. The most important thing is that there is color and fun. The theme of this year's celebration is, to the east, the amazing journey of Marco Polo. It pays homage to Venice's greatest traveler on the 700th anniversary of his death. The carnival festivities continue through February 13th. Are those balloons coming out of a rat's body? Oh man, I don't know, but those are some really cool costumes out there. Yeah, awesome. And fun fact, I think the first, it stems from a tradition from 1162, when wow. the city was celebrating the um, victory over another city, Achillea. Oh wow, that's really a long history there. Yeah, right? Yeah. So hopefully right. they clean up any of that confetti and it doesn't get in the water. <laughs> yes, true that. All right, uh, we'll be right back in one minute, so stay with us. NTD News, the fastest growing independent news source in America bringing you breaking news from around the world. Expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original award-winning documentaries. We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. 
We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. Watch us right here on NTD News. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. France and Japan are the latest countries to suspend funding for the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. This after Israel's allegation that members of the agency participated in the October 7th terrorist attack. Three American servicemen are dead and dozens are wounded after a deadly drone attack on U.S. forces in Jordan. Find out who officials believe is behind the attack and how lawmakers are reacting. Officials from Israel, Qatar, Egypt and the U.S. meet to discuss a deal to release hostages and pause fighting. Was any progress made? Former President Trump vows to appeal an $83 million verdict in E. Jean Carroll's defamation case. More on what prompted the jury's decision and what comes next. Lawmakers on the verge of striking a bipartisan deal on border reform that could unlock foreign aid for Ukraine and Israel. Hear what Trump has to say about it. The IRS is accepting tax returns for 2023 starting today. We take a look at how to navigate your returns with the host of Entity Business. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome, kicking off a new week. Today is Monday, January 29th, and in today's top news, American troops under attack. Three U.S. service members were killed and at least 34 wounded in a drone assault by Iran-backed groups in Jordan near the Syrian border. Officials say the drone struck near the barracks early in the morning, which could explain the high number of casualties. President Biden promised the U.S. would respond. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the attack and responses from lawmakers and others. Officials say the drone struck near the barracks early in the morning, which could explain the high number of casualties. President Biden promised the U.S. would respond. We've lost three brave soldiers in an attack on our base. The military said the attack occurred at a base in northeastern Jordan, reportedly called Tower 22, near the Syrian border. Tower 22 holds a strategically important location in Jordan, where the country's borders meet Syria and Iraq. The base includes logistics support, and there are roughly 350 Army and Air Force troops stationed there. Former NATO allied Supreme Commander Wesley Clark says the strike aimed to demonstrate America's powerlessness. To make us look weak, to uh, show that we're incapable of defending ourselves. Former President Trump issued a statement saying, this brazen attack on the United States is yet another horrific and tragic consequence of Joe Biden's weakness and surrender. This is the first time U.S. troops have died at enemy hands in the region since the war in Gaza started. Biden says the U.S. knows it was carried out by radical Iran-backed militant groups operating in Syria and Iraq. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin says he's outraged and deeply saddened by the deaths and injuries of U.S. service members. Iran's mission to the United Nations said in a statement on Monday that Tehran was not involved in the attack. Retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling called for caution in any rush to action against Iran. 
you got to remember that Iran is connected to not only Russia, but also China and other nations. The Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella organization of hardline Iran-backed factions, claimed attacks on three bases, including one on the Jordan-Syria border. It's unclear if they're responsible for the deaths of the three U.S. troops. The attack is likely to fan fears of wider conflict in the Middle East. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. On Sunday, France became the latest country to pause its funding of the United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees. This following allegations by Israel that employees of the agency took part in the October 7th Hamas terrorist attacks. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, on Friday opened an investigation into some of its employees based on information provided by Israel. Israel alleged that 12 of the agency's 13,000 staff in Gaza were involved in the October 7th attacks where Hamas terrorists killed 1,200 and abducted hundreds more. The UN on Sunday confirmed that nine of those 12 staff members had been fired. An urgent and comprehensive uh, independent review of UNRWA uh, will be conducted as it has been announced by Philippe Lazzarini, the Commissioner General of UNRWA. Any employee of UNRWA who is involved in acts of terror will be held accountable, including through criminal prosecution. Several countries, including UNRWA's main donor, the United States, swiftly paused their funding to the organization. France and Japan are the latest to join that list. France and Japan echoed statements by other countries, calling the allegations extremely serious. They said they would halt all unallocated funds until the investigation is complete. Criminal prosecution of UN staff members would be a rare move, since they normally enjoy functional immunity. This means they cannot be taken to court for anything they have said or done as part of their duties. Prosecuting them would mean that Israel's allegations against them are accurate. The White House welcomed the investigation. As Secretary Blinken made clear in his call with the Secretary General yesterday, we expect that that will be a complete and thorough and transparent investigation. While stressing the serious nature of the allegations, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres urged countries to reconsider suspending their funding. So what is known about the evidence and what does this mean for the millions of people dependent on humanitarian aid? We bring in Brett Schaefer. He is a senior research fellow in international regulatory affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Good morning, Brett. Good to see you. So at least 10 countries now have withdrawn their funding to UNRWA in, in light of these allegations. What is known about the evidence that Israel provided? Uh, apparently, the uh, Israeli government has provided uh, the organization with video evidence, other corroborating evidence that its employees uh, had participated in the horrific terrorist attacks of October 7th. Uh, this is about a dozen people, but it could be many. Um, we don't know this, and to the extent that those employees may be involved in, for instance, housing hostages, uh, that has been one accusation that was made earlier when one of the hostages was released. She said that she had been housed in the home of an UNRWA employee. So this te uh, theoretically could go much further. So if that should, what does that mean for the people in the region? I mean, civilians in Gaza. So how significant is that halt in funding for them? Well, it's going to be significant in the long term. If you look at the announcements, most of the uh, governments have said that they are going to halt uh, future funding or additional funding. 
So that uh, by definition means that the existing funding or existing commitments were going to go forward. Uh, so that allows the organization to continue to provide uh, humanitarian relief in the short term. You also have to understand that other UN organizations, for instance, the World Food Program uh, is providing assistance through UNRWA as sort of a subcontractor because UNRWA employees are in present in Gaza and most of these organizations do not have employees directly involved there. Wow. Well, so there are critics saying that this kind of reaction to withdraw funding is out of proportion because there are so many people dependent on that. And the UNRWA chief also said that he was shocked because it involved, in his words, such a small amount of staff. So why do you think there was such an immediate reaction from all these countries before an investigation? Well, I, I'm frankly quite shocked that uh, he was surprised by this. UNRWA employees have a long history of ties to terrorism and ties to supporting uh, terrorism. Uh, UNRWA Director General a few uh, years ago actually admitted that they employed Hamas employees and that he saw no problem with that. UNRWA, the organization, has a long history of teaching uh, through the textbooks extremism, uh, uh, reverence of martyrdom, uh, posting maps that don't have Israel on the map, uh, teaching extremist rhetoric in the classroom, uh, we also have a uh, history of Hamas and other terrorist organizations uh, housing weapons and even launching attacks from UNRWA facilities. So to think that this organization is just now discovering that uh, its employees have links to terrorism, uh, I think is incredibly disingenuous by UNRWA. And furthermore, when, during the current conflict in Gaza, uh, Israel has said that in every instance that they've come across an UNRWA facility, they have found weapons or other links to Hamas terrorists uh, on those facilities 100% of the time. So the links between UNRWA and Hamas terrorists in Gaza is very close. And it's appalling to me to, th to think that uh, the director general can go ahead and say that he's surprised by this. It's, it's shocking to me that he could assert that UNRWA uh, leadership was unaware of these uh, placements of weapons, the links to Hamas terrorists from its employees to the organization itself. Yeah, I think you brought up an interesting point. I think what you were referring to was Peter Hansen, a former head of UN uh, UNRWA, who said in 2004 to CBC that, um, you know, there is certainly Hamas members on um, UNRWA payroll, but that um, UN came out and said that it's just a political affiliation. It doesn't mean that, um, that there are necessarily militants or terrorists. Um, so what else is known about the vetting when it comes mm -hmm. to UN staff? Like, how can something like this happen? Just in a couple of seconds. Sorry, we are very well, limited in time. Yeah, sure. Uh, clearly, the vetting is inadequate. And it's not just a political affiliation. Uh, UN Watch uh, published a list of 3,000 UNRWA employees. It's a social media list where they were praising the October 7th attacks and uh, celebrating Hamas and its activities. So this is not just an individual here or an individual there that has sympathies with Hamas. It's quite extensive among the UNRWA employees. All right. Thank you so much, Brett Schaefer. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Israel confirmed that a four-way meeting between the U.S., Israel, Qatar and Egypt took place in Europe over the weekend. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office said talks were constructive, but significant gaps remain. More meetings are expected to take place this week. 
CII Director William Burns, the head of Israel's Mossad intelligence service, the Qatari Prime Minister and the head of Egyptian intelligence discussed details of the deal. No details have been released. That's as hundreds of Israeli protesters yesterday blocked aid trucks from driving into Gaza. They demanded hostages be freed before any more aid gets delivered into the Strip. Meanwhile, Netanyahu remains defiant after the UN ruling asking Israel for a compliance report within a month. The International Court of Justice had ordered Israel to limit deaths and damage, but stopped short of ordering a ceasefire. Netanyahu said the war's goal is to eliminate Hamas, return all hostages, and ensure Gaza will no longer be a threat to Israel. Just ahead, former President Trump vows to appeal an $83 million verdict in E. Jean Carroll's defamation case. More on the verdict and what could be next. Lawmakers on the verge of striking a bipartisan deal on border reform that could unlock foreign aid for Ukraine and Israel. Hear what Trump has to say about it. Tax season is upon us as the IRS starts accepting 2023 tax returns. What you need to know to navigate this year coming up. Good to have you back. A federal jury has ordered former President Trump to pay over $83 million in damages to E. Jean Carroll. The verdict marked the second time over the past year that a jury has awarded millions to Carroll over her defamation claims. Trump promised to appeal minutes after the verdict. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. Friday's verdict against Trump awarded E. Jean Carroll a total amount eight times higher than first sought in her lawsuit over $18 million in compensatory damages and $65 million in punitive damages. Carroll's lawyers told the jury Trump should be punished with an unusually high number to get defamatory comments to stop. Carroll attorney Roberta Kaplan told the jury in closing arguments, billions of dollars is just a drop in the bucket for Trump. Kaplan, after the verdict, told CNN, all Trump understands is money. And so you should award an amount of money that will make him stop. The jury in the first defamation trial against Trump awarded Carroll a total of $5 million in damages last year after finding Trump liable for sexual battery and defamation. That verdict is still being appealed. Trump declared Friday he will swiftly appeal this one too, posting on Truth Social that the legal system is out of control and being used as a political weapon. Trump attorney Alina Haba predicted a win on appeal and vowed to keep fighting for First Amendment rights. No, I'm not having any second thoughts about representing President Trump. It is the proudest thing I could ever do. Trump maintains he was falsely accused. He can either pay the court the full amount or put a 20% deposit down to appeal. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. House Republicans Sunday released two articles of impeachment against Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The allegations say the cabinet secretary committed high crimes and misdemeanors. The first article charges Mayorkas with willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law. House Republicans allege in the second article that Mayorkas has breached the public trust for his handling of the southern border amid record numbers of illegal immigrants. The Homeland Security Committee will meet Tuesday to mark up the articles. The articles are expected to be sent to the full House for a vote. If the House vetoes to impeach Mayorkas, he could then go on trial in the Senate for potential removal. The top Democrat on the committee, Representative Benny Thompson, pushed back against accusations, saying the articles lack clear charges and evidence. 
A key border deal negotiator says lawmakers are on the verge of striking a bipartisan deal to enact new border controls. But former President Trump is calling on Republicans to reject it. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, a key negotiator on a possible border deal, said on Sunday that text of a border compromise could be ready to go to the Senate floor as soon as this week. We do have a bipartisan deal. We're finishing the text right now. The deal will give the president authority to shut the border between ports of entry when illegal crossings reach high levels. Also, reforming the asylum system to resolve cases in a shorter time frame and expediting work permits. President Biden has said he would sign it right now. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. Along with tighter border control, the bill would also unlock Republican support for Ukraine aid. Earlier, Republican senators had insisted that border policy changes should be a prerequisite to Biden's $110 billion emergency request for funding Ukraine and Israel. The consequence of failure here is not just that we keep immigration as an open issue available for Donald Trump to exploit in the next election. It is also that Ukraine loses this war. Former President Trump has come out in opposition to the bill. He said there could be no compromises on illegal immigration and called the deal a betrayal of America. He said that if Biden wants to secure the border, he has the power to do it without a bill. Trump also said that passing the bill now would be, quote, another gift to the radical left Democrats. A lot of the senators are trying to say respectfully they're blaming it on me. I said, that's okay. Please blame it on me, please, because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill. House Speaker Mike Johnson warned in a letter last week that the deal would be dead on arrival. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Mott to discuss the start of the tax season. Tax season has officially started as of today. The IRS will start accepting and processing 2023 federal income tax returns. So Don, what are the best tips for getting those taxes done as smoothly and easily as possible? Right, so first of all, I think what everyone should know, of course, is uh, when the deadline is. So unless you file for a six month extension, an automatic extension, the filing deadline for most people is going to be April 15th. So mark that date on the calendar. And even if you do get an extension, April 15th is the day you have to pay all your uh, remaining taxes that you owe for 2023 even if you don't file exactly by that date. Um, so when you do actually start filing, you can uh, look through uh, your returns from last year as a point of reference as for where to start. It's going to give you a sort of an idea of what documents uh, you need to have handy to fill out this year's return. So if you opted out of paper documents uh, last year, which some of us have done, including myself, you may have to go online to find the documents that you need, uh, whether that's from your employer, your banks, insurers, brokerages, uh, or others. And keep in mind of any big changes that has happened in your life during the past year, because it could impact your tax liability or refund in a very big way. Uh, so that's like if you got married, you got divorced, um, had a baby, become widowed, um, or bought or sold a new, uh, sold a home, uh, moved into a different state, etc. And just one more um, tip: if you got paid through a thirty a third party payment app uh, like Venmo for side gigs or or a small business, uh, you should check your account online to see if the company issued you a ten ninety nine k form. Hmm. And I'm sure many people might be wondering this about, you know, free ways to file taxes. What are some of the ways to do that? 
Right, there's actually a number of free options out there where uh, it's going to let you to file for free, but let me just mention one particular one. Uh, if your income is $79,000 or less uh, last year and you have a simple enough return, you can actually uh, prepare and file your uh, tax returns electronically for free with some select tax software providers. And as well as this year, the IRS is launching a uh, pilot program called Direct File that actually lets you to uh, directly file without a middleman. Uh, and the pilot is being launched in, uh, in, on a limited basis for now. It's only going to operate in 12 states and it's still in its early stages right now. So probably most people won't be able to uh, take advantage of that right now. And another thing to keep in mind is that if you want to speed up your returns and get your refund as quickly as possible, you should fill out your return accurately and completely. And when you do file electronically, you have to select the direct deposit when asked how you want to receive payment and make sure taxes are filed correctly. It's something obvious, but actually according to the IRS website is uh, one of the most common mistakes where in in information is entered incorrectly. Wow. Well, yeah, and well, unfortunately for the gig workers out there, that new IRS software is not going to apply to them. So yeah. but they have to find other ways to get their refunds if they're getting some. But yeah, what about the Red Sea? What can you tell us there, Don? Right, so on the Red Sea, the Houthi attacks are disrupting trade worldwide, it seems like. This is on top of pandemic-related bottlenecks at ports and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So how this affecting consumers is that uh, the CEO of a supply manage management company says if disruption to Red Sea trade lasts a year, it could raise goods inflation by up to 2%. And this could, cause, this could cause, in fact, a resurgence of inflation and higher interest rates. And car makers like Tesla, Volvo, and Suzuki have had to temporarily halt production while waiting on necessary parts. And as well, the British uh, retail chain, Marks and Spencer, said that they will delay new spring clothing and home goods collections. Um, Flexport also says about 25% of global shipping could be diverted. Well, yeah, really working against those central banks there. And also, yeah, internationally, right? Car factories in Germany are idle. And Egypt especially is suffering losses because of a, of a lack of tra transit traffic through the Suez Canal. So they have economic pressure. So a lot of things going on there, very yeah. serious. I mean, Tesla, I think, is actually one of the first companies, car automakers, to announce that the Red Sea's disruptions have actually impacted them. So we're oh, definitely, yeah. and Ikea as well. So we're definitely seeing uh, some impact yeah, to consumers. Starting to feeling that now. Well, thank you so much, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. And you will be on in a little bit again uh, for yeah. the news today at 11 a.m. Eastern time. That's where you can catch him again, but we are ending our program right now. So stay tuned for news today at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.